You're listening to the Bring Them Home Aliyah podcast, hosted by Josh Wander. Welcome back to Bring Them Home. This is Josh Wander from Yushalay Mir Kodesh. We are again fortunate enough to be here with uh, Rav Nachman Kahana. It is the end of the the Sefer Abereshis, and soon we'll begin with starting Shemos. We had uh, missed a few weeks for, for Hanukkah, and we Baruch Hashem are back and uh, getting ready for Tu Bishvat and Purim. Lots of exciting news. Again, the country is closed for an indefinite amount of time to uh, tourists which I say is a clear message from Hashem that Hashem does not want Jews to come here as tourists. This is not another Cancun. This is not another Disneyland. Uh, if you come here for, for the right purposes, then the gates of Aliyah have been open the entire time. And uh, we encourage everyone to come uh, on Aliyah to come here to live as uh, Hashem expects the Jewish people to do. Uh, so we're looking forward to hearing whatever uh, wisdom we can hear from you, Rav Nachman. Welcome back to the show. Shalom, everybody. From Josh. Ken, always good to come back and be part of your effort, a great effort, important effort to bringing Jews back to Eretz Israel, which is probably, it goes also within the framework of saving a life. Uh, saving a life uh, the whole Torah is pushed off when you have to save a life. Uh, there's no Shabbat, there's no Yom Kippur. So saving, bringing a Jew to Eretz Yisrael, you're saving not only his life, but his children and grandchildren and great-children forever. Everybody has to close their door on the Galut of 2,000 years and say, I'm here, my family has finished the Galut, no one's ever going to go back again. And that's what you deal. It's a big mitzvah. People always ask if we're successful in uh, our project, and I don't have any way of gauging whether we're successful or not, but I always tell people that if we succeed in convincing just one person, then it's all worth it. Chazal say, Someone that he saves even one Jewish life as if he saved the entire world because Adam and Chava were one couple. And the 8 billion people uh, living today came from them. And saving a life. Now the question is, if you come here, will it be dati, not dati? As far as I'm concerned, for this generation, it really doesn't matter. Because the concern of this generation is to bring Jewish people home. To fill in the land. Like the Ramban says, there should not be one space in Eretz filled empty of a Jewish people. Jewish presence. Ramban is Pevashon Vayikra. Okay, anyway. But that, that brings a question because uh, we know that it says in uh, Vayikra, it says that if uh, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations, that the land will vomit, not you out, also when you defile it. We know that there's a condition 
of receiving Eretz Israel that the Jewish people will act in the proper way, and if they don't, they the the land will reject them. Is that not true? That's what it said, but that speaks in a, a time when the Jewish people were in Eretz Israel. Hashem brought them here. They divided the land, and we had them where the Jews were here, but. But when the Jews are not here, the mitzvah is to bring them here. And it doesn't matter what they are and how they are. To bring, bring back Jewish, uh, the Jewish presence in Eretz Israel, that's a godly act. And remember, Am Yisrael is an Am. Every nation has all kind of people. It can't just say, the Jews are those, those, only those that go to my best medrash. That's not, that's not Judaism. There's an Am. There never was a generation that everybody was a tzaddik. Maybe, maybe, not even Tzadik, Shlomo, Melech, David. You always had these kind of people. Hashem looks at Am Yisrael. Berkeyavet says, Vamech kulam tzaddikim. And your entire nation, they're all tzaddikim. Because Hashem looks at it as an Am. One Am. We look at the neighbor and we're very critical. But Hashem looks at it as a family, as his children. And eventually, but things like this, you have a family, say in America, a very religious family, chances are the great-grandchildren will marry a shiksa, marry a goy. Now at the story of someone here, Machal the Shabbos, his grandson will be going to yeshiva. Amazing, amazing. So what, uh, what would you like to speak about today, the parasha? Uh, I'd like to speak about the end of the parasha, which is very, very emotional, very, what should I tell you? How do you say it's mitzamreya? It's chilling even. The brothers come to Yosef. Remember, I point out, never did the brothers ask Yosef for forgiveness. And Yosef never said, I forgive you. The brothers cannot ask for forgiveness because in their eyes, they sold Yosef according to halacha. Because by going into what halacha was, so how can you say, I'm sorry, they're doing what they thought was halacha. And therefore, there's no, there's no request for forgiveness and no giving of forgiveness. But they come and say like this, at the end of the Pasha, They say, the father said, we should say this to Yosef. And they suffer or, or deal with the bad things that we did to you. And they said, it's another, they're not saying forgiveness, just saying accept it and let's move on. Yelchu and the brothers went, they fell down in front of Yosef, prostrated themselves in front of Yosef. But Yomun, they said, we are your slaves. We're not going to ask for forgiveness. You want to punish us? That's your business. What does Yosef say? It says, don't fear. Elohim, Ani, am I in the place of God? If you did wrong, Hashem will punish you. I'm not going to punish you. Now, let's go a little bit further on. I just like uh, as introductory. In our world, there are two forms. There are two forms uh, that exist: a line and a curve. Nobody can imagine a third form aside from a line and a curve. There certainly is, but it's beyond our experience, so we cannot even think about it. There is in the world, there's a line and a curve. The goyim, 
live according to a line, meaning incident happened, it's over, we go on to the next one. And what happened never comes back again. Jewish people, we live in a, in a marzor. We live in a, <coughs> what do you call it, we, uh, a, a cycle. Every Pesach, the arousal in the world, the feeling, the spirit of freedom. Every Shavuot, this feeling of accepting the Torah comes back to the Jewish people, and so on and so forth. So actually, it doesn't really matter <coughs> the space of time between incidences, but they're always coming back again. <coughs> okay, I want to go on to say as follows. We know about the 10 martyred rabbis. The story is we speak about them on Yom Kippur and on Tisha B'Av. The Roman proconsul in Eretz Israel wanted to punish the Jewish people, but the Romans, like many democratic countries, they deal only according to the law. The Romans will kill, but it's got to be according to the law. And he was looking, how can I find a way to punish the Jewish people that's within the law. Anyway, he asked people to translate the Bible for him, and he heard it, and he saw there was a pasuk that someone should kidnap his brother Jew and sell him, mochumat, punishment is he has to die. So, oh, that's it. The brothers sold Yosef, kidnapped him, and sold him. Now he brought together these 10 great rabbis, and he said, since the time of the 12, 10 tribes at that time, there were no, no generation with great rabbis like you. Now since your ancestors were not punished for what they did, remember Yosef did not punish them. They were never when punished. Someone's got to pay because there is the quality of justice out there. And according to the law, you got to die. Remember, the Roman did according to the Jewish law. And he killed them. For this, this is a terrible tragedy. The ten greatest Rabbanim Tanaim killed in horrible ways, one after the other. Tragic. Okay, let's jump a little bit further to more tomorrow time. The Mufti of Yushalayim, Hajamin Husseini, Yamach Shamo, an evil man, a man full of hate, spent the war years, Second World War, in Berlin with his friend Hitler. And the pictures, speaking to each other, shouting, shaking hands, and it's brought down, we know it's qualified news, that the Mufti and Hitler made an agreement. The Mufti said as follows, I'll bring you thousands of Muslim volunteers from Bosnia, and they'll go to SS and they'll do whatever you want. In return, when you conquer Palestine, the Holy Land, I want you to build an, ex an ex extermination camp like Auschwitz and there bring all the Jews of the Middle East and they should be killed. And they shook, shook hands and that was the deal. The Germans will build an Eretz Israel, a camp that killed all the Jews in the Middle East. What happened? Rommel was stopped at Al Alamein by the British and then he started to retreat in North Africa and they never came into Eretz Israel. And the thing for the for the extermination camp never came about. Why? Because the Midat Adin, the quality of sheer pure justice, 
came to the Kodibur and said, the brothers sold Yosef. They meant it good, they didn't mean it good. They sold their brother and have to be punished. Shem says, the quality, that's I built the world on quality of justice and the quality of mercy. And now justice is right. So what happened in lieu of the 10 brothers that sold Yosef, nine, nine brothers and the Kodibuchu came together? That, but I'm not going to go into that. So these 10 martyred rabbis were killed. They were the kapra. They were the repentance for the punishment of selling Yosef. Had they not been killed, there would have been extermination camp in Eretz Israel. But because the quality of justice was fulfilled, it didn't happen in Eretz Israel. Now, here's the point. Where was the place that Hitler and the Mufti decided, agreed to make this terrible Auschwitz kind of a camp in Eretz Israel? It was a place called Emek Dotan, the Valley of Dotan, because it's flat and there are also railroad trains. The Valley of Dotan is the place where the brothers sold Yosef. If not for what happened to the ten martyr rabbis, the place where they sold Yosef would have been the punishment for Am Yisrael for what happened in that very, very place. But because we seem to be a tragedy, the ten rabbis were killed were actually with an act of kapara, and the quality of mercy was satisfied, and the Jews, they never came into Eretzel, the Germans. That's what I, the way I am the Pashat. It's really, and all these things, I'm telling you, look into Google if you want, you see that it's all there. Dotan was the place that they planned to make this extermination camp. It gives you shivers just to think about it. First of all, we look at something as to be a terrible calamity, and it is. But we don't know the ways of Kodesh Bochu. This saved Am Yisrael. Okay. Now, I wrote something. If you want to hear what I wrote. We definitely do. Okay. This week we uh, we went through the first day. The, it's called Soma Asiri. The first of the tenth month. Asiri Betevet, Temtei of Tevet. Okay. The Holocaust is the most cruel calamity to befall the Jewish nation, outranking even the destruction of the two Batei Mikdash. As explained in Medrash Echa, in its analysis of chapter 79 of Tilim, the chapter begins with the words, Mizmor Lasaf, a, a song of praise to Hashem composed by Asaf the Levi. Medish points out that this introductory sentence is totally incompatible with the text, which deals with the projected destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. It should read, Asaf, a lamentation composed by Asaf, and not Mizmol Asaf, a song of praise composed by Asaf. text speaks about the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and opens up with the words, Mizmol Asaf, a song of praise. The Medrash explains that the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash is certainly a calamity of the First Order. However, even within the context of this punishment, Hashem showed His mercy by venting His anger on the wood and stones, a symbol of a name of the structure 
rather than destroying the people responsible for the destruction. Instead of destroying the Jewish people, he took out his, the, 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 the quality of justice on wood and stones. From here we see that even when we sin to the degree that Hashem sees fit to severely punish us, he vents his anger on our material possessions and not with the mass annihilation of the chosen people. So an inescapable question is, how did it come about in Hashem's world that seven and a half million Jews, not six million, that's that used to be, over seven and a half million Jews, including one and a half million children, and millions of God-fearing Torah Jews were sent to Lamaba through the chimneys of Auschwitz, Birkenau, and the other death camps. Hashem vents his anger on, on, on material things, not on people. Now, if one should make a determination that the Shoah was a punishment for the sins of the Jewish people, it would be hard-pressed to explain why, since all Jews are mutual guarantors. Call Yisrael only the Jews of Europe and parts of North Africa suffered such a fate, whereby the Jews of the U.S. and Eretz Israel were not only spared, but enjoyed good lives. If it's really if it was a punishment for the Jewish people. The matter of the Shoah is and will remain dominant in Jewish thought and behavior until the Mashiach arrives. In all humility, I wish to state my personal understanding of these events which consoled me in some small way when facing the unspeakable horror of the Shoah. The Torah states in Shemot, there's a pasuk, I'll translate it to English, the fire spreads to weeds, another person's field, and devours bales of wheat or uncut wheat on the field. The negligent perpetrator must make payment. In other words, he made a fire and didn't watch it. It spread to his neighbor's field and it uh, and it burnt weeds and valuable bales of wheat. What does it mean, the pasuk? The Gemara explains that the underlying meaning of the verse, the weeds, are the evil doers of the world. When Hashem decrees that these weeds be destroyed, the free hand of the angel of death begins with the wheat, the righteous who happen to be there among the evil doers. I reject any allegation that my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters sinned to a degree which justified the horrors of the Shoah. Some experts at counting other people's sins place the blame on simulation, but never has Jewish history encountered the numbers and rate of simulation and intermarriage found today among the Jews of the United States, yet they continue to thrive. Other sin counters put the blame on Zionism, others on the lack of Zionism, Jewish feelings of guilt know no bounds, as defined by Jewish Alzheimer's, where one forgets everything except the guilt. I submit that the show was not a Jewish thing. It was a decree made by Hashem and put into effect with the First World War that the evil descendants of Esau should put an end to one another. Russians should kill Germans and Germans Englishmen. English should kill Austrians. The Second World War was simply continuation of the first after an extended ceasefire. We were turned into soap because the leash on insanity was released and the Jews were caught up in it because we were there. And we were there because we did not understand when Esau kills Esau, it's no place for Yaakov to be. 
when the inhibitions of hatred are released, then the ever-present hatred of Jews rises to the fore, and Esav seeks to put an end to Yaakov. Two conclusions can be drawn from the above. If you reject the proposition of two world wars with death sentences decreed on the Goyim, and we were swept into it because we were there, you're left with two very bad options. One, to believe that the Jews of Europe sinned to the extent that one and a half million little children had to die, or the whole matter is beyond our comprehension, let's just go back building bigger and more expensive Holocaust museums and go back to living. If you live in a Goyish society, then no matter how firm you are, you can find yourself one day swept up in the tsunamis and 9-11s of that nation. In other words, when Goyim killed Goyim, the first one they killed are the Jews. That was the Shoah. Today, the 10th of Tevet, when I wrote this, was designated by Israel's chief rabbinate to be the general Kaddish day, Yom HaKadish HaKlali, when Kaddish is said for the untold number of Jews whose day of death is not known. I view the designation of Asar Tevet as the general Kaddish day by rabbis as a prophetic, prophetic act. Our long tragic history begins with the siege of Yerushalayim by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, in 588 BCE. It was followed by the destruction of the first holy temple in Babylon in exile of 70 years. After our return to Israel, the second base of was destroyed in the year 70 CE by the Romans and the long exile of 2,000 years. The concluding tragic episode in our history, the beginning is the siege around Yerushalayim by Nebuchadnezzar, the concluding tragic episode in our history is the Shoah. And three years after Medina Israel was established, the restoration of Am Yisrael to an intimate relationship with the Creator began. So, Asaba Tevet, the day of the day of the siege of Yerushalayim, and the day of Kaddish for the victims of the Shoah, the beginning and end of Hashem's Hestapanim concealment. The same day, begin same day comes to remind us remind us of the beginning of the Jewish tragic history when Muchanetza surrounded Yerushalayim and the end when we say Kaddish over the Shoah because now Midian the Israelis came about and it's a new relationship between a new relationship between Hashem and us and now the renewal of our historic mission to join the spiritual and physical worlds of Hashem for our fulfillment of the mitzvot in Eretz Yisrael. Shabbat Shalom. If we're already on the topic of Asara B'tevet, I have a question. It's a, a little bit of a provocative question. Maybe it's a lot of a provocative question. Those Jews that are outside of Eretz Yisrael today, that are around the world, that have the opportunity to come back and choose not to, do they have the right to fast on a Sarah B'tevet or Tisha B'av or any other other fasts that deal with the destruction of the temple? They have the ability to come and change it, but they're choosing not to. Do those Jews, they seem to be missing the point that on one hand they're fasting because they want the Beit HaMikdash to be rebuilt. On the other hand, they're not lifting a finger to actually make that happen. I, I give you an answer, a roundabout answer. 
The locha is the Beit HaMikdash can be built only when the majority of Jews are in Eretz Israel. That's a locha. It says in many places. The question is, how did Ezra and Nehemiah and the Zerubbabel build the Beit HaMikdash when a small minority of the Jews were in Eretz Israel? When Ezra came with 42,000. He found another 10,000. He had millions of Jews outside the country. How did he build the Beit HaMikdash? It's a big question. We are sure Mekutna, a great Rav that lived, I think died in the 1930s, he gave a fantastic answer and he says as follows. Majority of Jews have to be in Eretz Israel. The question is, who is in, who is being counted? He said, the Jews in Eretz Israel, certainly they are counted. And the Jews in Chutzaretz who cannot come here for all kinds of reasons, they are counted. The Jews that can come and don't want to come, they're not in the running even. They're not even counted. And money to the money of the Jews in Eretz Israel and Jews that cannot come, the majority were in Eretz Israel. Meaning, he's saying, I'm not saying, if Shomer Kutna got on the door, he says, the ones that can come and didn't want to come, they're not even part of the part of the voting. What can I tell you? If you can come and don't come. If it's before the Medina was established, okay, you can't come. But once you can come and you don't come, so then the onus is not upon the goyim, it's on you. If you cannot come because the British won't let you in or the Turks won't let you in, it's on their head. But if the country, the first chok made, the first law passed Medina at Israel, 1948 was the chok of the return, law of return. Every Jew may come here and become a citizen immediately. And the country opened up the gates for the Jews to come. And they didn't come. So I have to repeat again, I went to a wonderful yeshiva Tana, Rabbi Jacob Joseph. Then I went to, I learned in Nevada in Borough Park for five years. Now, but once, once, was Eretzville mentioned? Not talking about Medina Israel. Even the years of Shemitah was non, it was irrelevant to their lives. I loved my rabbi, my my rabbim. I had great respect for them, but here they were dead wrong. Two of them came when they reached the age of what's it called Social Security. That left a bad taste in my mouth. But they came, but it was not there. You cannot build a Medina on people that you have to schlep here. You have to be only people that want to come here. What can I say? Some of my best friends are in America and don't come. What should I do? On a personal level, I like all of my friends. I like every Jew. But when you come to a level of the, in, in the ideals, then they're all wrong. They're dead wrong. I feel sorry for them. Because I wrote many times, the day is going to come, you will not be able to come here. Hashem gave us a window of opportunity. Today you cannot come. Or very, very difficult to come here. Hashem used Corona in many ways. But one is to stop Aliyah from those that did not take advantage. If you have a million dollar house in America and you sell it, you may be able to get Four rooms in Yerushalayim in an apartment. 
That's also, also a factor. The longer you wait, the more money you have to put up. Because the country is growing, getting richer more and more. Our shekel, the most stable currency in the world. Why? Because people are buying it all over the world. People are buying because that's a stable currency. How did that happen? They just passed now in Ramat Gan to build a 110-story building. What are we talking about? The GG, gross national product, GMP of Israel, is higher than any country in the OCPD. It's $55,000 a year per Israeli citizen. It overranks England more than Germany. In other words, we produce goods that are valued at $55,000 times the number of people in the country. There's a bracha here. But if you can miss the boat, you can miss the boat. And sadly, I'm sorry for every Jew that doesn't come here. It reminds me of the fact that uh, our economy is booming, even though a large portion of our economy is based on tourism. And for the past two years, we haven't had tourists. And still our economy is booming. Still the shekel is stronger than ever. And it's I, I compare it often to the bracha that were given during the Shemitah year, where even though we leave our fields hallow, fallow, we're still going to make it, Hashem's still going to give us double the bracha, and uh, we're still going to see bracha. So it's an amazing miracle that we're stable, even though we have no tourism in the country for two years, our economy is still booming. I recall when I came here 60 years ago, my wife and I, we used to go to the Makole, to the uh, grocery store, and buy half a loaf of bread. We didn't have money for a full loaf, not just us, many people. And the country is so poor. And then came the Six-Day War, everything changed. And today it's, I mean, you don't need, if you want to see the Mashiach, don't wait for the Mashiach. Go to Machan Yudah, the Shuk in Yerushalayim. Look around and see the various produce that we grow in Eretz Israel. There's a Pesach in Yecheskel that says that the sign of Mashiach, Mara says, sign of Mashiach is when he takes a look at the produce and the, and the country coming alive. You see it today. I was, uh, I had a, uh, I'm not sure if it was a dream or I was awake at the time, but I couldn't sleep this past week. And I had this idea that I have to go to the States and uh, make meetings with all the gedolim in, in America today, of Shmuel Kamenetsky and Rav Reuven Feinstein and Rav Malkiel Kotler, and speak to them directly about what the situation is and, and hear their, what they have to say about the current situation and Jews coming here, and uh, do my do my ishtadlus to try to convince them. Not that I, that I can convince them, but at least do my, my small part to try to get them to call to their the Jews in America today that it's time to start getting ready, if nothing else, if not if not getting up and moving immediately, at least getting ready to move. Josh, be happy to get a cup of coffee from them. Okay. On a positive note, <laughs> uh, and to give you some, so the rabbi some nachas, we have uh, a letter that I got uh, this week from uh, Eli and Yitti Glazer, who said that they listen to our podcast all of the time, 
And they said that Baruch Hashem, they made Aliyah from New York on Monday, Zachinu. Wow. And uh, they say that they're big Hasidim of the, of the podcast, and that uh, so perhaps we did our little, little uh, part in convincing them, and hopefully they will turn around and, uh, and, 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 and convince their friends. Uh, we call it in Israel, Chaver um, Mevi uh, Chaver, that one person brings another, and we hope that they'll uh, do their part in, in helping to bring their friends and family along with them. Amen. Allah. Amen. And as far as the uh, who's counted, you just reminded me one two other things, which is that uh, there's an anecdote about uh, Abraham Lincoln, that Abraham Lincoln uh, had a, a meeting with his cabinet, and uh, after the meeting, I think it was about slavery, and after the meeting, he said, "Okay, it's it's uh, the vote. Uh, we took a vote, and the vote is twelve to one. The one wins." Because the one was him, and he was—he felt that he was in the right, so it didn't matter what the other twelve had to say, because he was the one that made the, the final decision. Likewise, with Rav Nachman, uh, you're you're fond of telling the story of, of Rav Yochanan and Zakai, in 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 the end of his days when he's when he's about to pass away, and he removes the things from his house, and he, he so that also was the story. What, what's the story that uh, he, he dreamt of? Six hundred years before that. Uh, the King Chizkiyahu was the same situation that Menchum Zakai was. Menchum Zakai was besieged by the Romans. 600 years before, King Chizkiyahu was besieged by the, by the Babylonians. And inside Yerushalayim, now the Babylonians sent them a message to the Jewish people. Give up your sovereignty. I'll take you out to Galut. You won't be hurt at all. You'll be able to live, continue your Jewish life entirely. You have to give up your sovereignty. Or to go to war and you'll die. And inside the state of Yushalayim, there was two camps. One camp was under the prophet Yeshayahu that said, hold out for a miracle. And the other one was Shavna the scribe that said, let's give in. It's a good deal. We'll come back in 500 years from now. This way, we're going to die. They started to take a vote. A vote. The vote came out, 130,000 people to go with Shavna and to go out to Chutzaros. 110,000, 20,000 less with Yeshayahu to have them believe in Hashem, be, Hashem will save them. They brought the results to Yeshayahu. Yeshayahu, 110,000 with you, 130,000 against you. He said, oh, unanimous. Unanimous, 110,000, unanimous. What do you mean, Rebbe? 20,000 more than yours, he says. A majority built on Rishayim is not a majority. Whoever votes against me is a Russia. What's Sanhedrin. Okay, and with that note, we thank you again for uh, your words of wisdom, and we hope to, to, to hear from you again next week. And uh, again, we encourage people. I want to mention uh, the Rav's uh, website because people don't know how to get to the Rav's website. What is the URL? nachmankahana.com nachmankahana.com so everybody should go there there you can you can order the rav's books and uh, be in contact with the rav if necessary and uh, we encourage you also to go to our website bringthemhome.org.il just to add one thing i don't sell my books the books are sold by someone else by a bookstore mm -hmm. i never took one penny for anything which i wrote because hashem gave me the stechel it's not my stechel why should I make money what Hashem gave me?
Beautiful. Okay. So we should have bracha and atzlocha, and we should, uh, again, we daven every day that uh, kibbutz goes. There's, there was a story that I heard this past week of a, of a big rav in Europe that was said over that people are always asking whether they should get up and they should make it, they should do something to help the geula happen. So he said back, he says, you know, that we say in Shemona Esrei, three times a day, we say three brachas. We say, Rifa'enu, Hashem, V'nei Rafei. We say, Baruch Aleinu. And then we speak about the kibbutz Goliath, the Kabbashah for Godel. He says, he says, people, for some strange reason, he says, no one has ever come to me very, very ill and said, should I, should I go see a doctor? No one's ever come to me and said, you know what, I'm poor, I don't have any money to eat, should I go make a parnasa? But for some reason, people come to me and they ask me the question, Tikaba Shofar, should I go and should I lift a finger to do something about the gula? He says, I don't understand why it would be any different than the first two situations. We hope that people understand that and they uh, take action immediately. Thank you for listening to the Bring Them Home Aliyah podcast. If you identify with our message, please subscribe and tell your friends about us too. You can leave us a review on iTunes, as that really helps us grow. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts. For sponsorship opportunities and for all other inquiries, please email us at bringthemhomeisrael at gmail.com. Check out our website at www.israeltorah.org for more content on this vital topic. This is the place to be.